Well, this has been, as we've said a couple times here, quite an incredible week, hasn't it? Right? To, to see what was really just uh, a rainstorm, right? A pretty big one, but just rainstorm. We, we deal with rain all the time here in BC, and yet it, watching what happens, it really took just a bit more water, and suddenly we found ourselves pretty much isolated from the rest of the country, right? We were blocked off on both ways, right? The one still isn't open. It's amazing how quickly, you know, all of our infrastructure, all of our planning and all these things can become overwhelmed, right? It's an incredible thing to witness. And yet probably what's been more incredible to witness has been actually the response of people to see people going out there, right? Going into flood waters to rescue, you know, cattle, right? So that, you know, livelihoods can be saved and all the rest. To see people opening up their homes, opening up their fridges, their wallets, right? Donating clothing and the toys and all kinds of other things so that people have enough during this season has been quite incredible to see, right? To see these very, very selfish, heroic kinds of actions has been really quite amazing, right? It, it, it kind of calls us to, to imitate that kind of selfless behavior, right? And, and I think it's part of the thing, it's part of why we love sort of those hero stories, right? We love hearing about heroes, whether it's sort of the real life and, and seeing people truly do these, even to, you know, movies and books and all these other kinds of things. We, we love reading that, that hero, selfless, giving of themselves story, Right? And I, I think it's probably natural for most of us that whenever we hear something like that, we begin to kind of put ourselves into the story. You know, what if, what if I was in that situation? Right? Some of us are asking that question quite literally at this moment. Right? What, what if I was in that situation? What would I do? What would my response be? And we, we kind of imagine ourselves to be the hero. Whatever story, whatever thing we're reading or looking at, we, we kind of insert ourselves into that role. But what's so interesting is when we come to the Bible, when we come to the book of Acts in particular that we've been walking through, we've been looking at at Paul and he's doing sometimes some pretty heroic things. And yet what we're going to realize today, especially that, that Paul really isn't the hero. Actually, the story isn't really about Paul. It's not about what he is able to accomplish or do, even as he does heroic, amazing things that we should imitate. Ultimately, the story isn't about him. It's, it's actually about what God is doing. Paul is playing the, the supporting character role in all of this. Right? I, was, I was going to entitle my sermon, Paul is a Tool. Uh, that sounds just a little bit too much like clickbait, but essentially it's the same thing, isn't it? Paul is being used by God. He's the supporting character to the grand story that God is doing. And and ultimately, I think that's how we're called to think about ourselves as well. We're called into that supporting role as we see what God is doing in our world. We get the chance to partner in and support what God is going to do. And so the question I want us to ask is, well, how do we do that? How do we do that role well? What does it look like to ultimately point the spotlight on God? So if you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to open to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be, picking up our story in verse 11. And so I'll invite you to read uh, along with me. And if you're able, please stand with me as we read the word of God. This is what God's word says. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. 
and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we, were, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her, uh, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of God Most High, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out, of, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order... He put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. And he brought them up uh, into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the uh, the police saying, let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come and themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went, uh, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, this is our our final sermon in our series in the book of Acts, at least for a little while. We're going to begin with uh, Christmas Advent starting next week, if you can believe it. But really, this is just the beginning of, of Paul's work. This is really the beginning of this sort of second missionary journey that Paul has been going on. We looked last week as he started out, started out all the way back in Israel and worked his way all the way through the country that is now Turkey. 
He made it all the way to the western edge of Turkey, and something really strange had been happening all throughout. Instead of him stopping and preaching in all of these cities as he went along, actually, the Holy Spirit kept telling Paul, no, you actually can't go preach there, you have to keep going. No, you can't preach there, you have to keep going. And so Paul had been walking along, going along this sort of trade route and going, well, where am I supposed to go? Till finally he reached the far western edge that are on, you know, looking at the ocean. And Paul gets this vision, this Macedonian man who says, come over to us, help us here. And so Paul crosses over the sea and lands in Greece. Macedonia is modern day Greece. This is the first time the gospel has ever landed on the European continent. And in fact, the stories that we've just read are the first converts that we see in Greece in Europe. The first few people who came to faith in Jesus Christ. But what I want us to see here is chiefly, primarily, what God is doing. What has God been doing throughout this chapter? And really, what is Paul then doing as his supporting role? Right? We tend to focus on Paul and sort of say, well, he's the main character, he's the hero. But in reality, we're meant to see what God is doing and how Paul is acting faithfully with him. And so we're going to see Paul is, is trusting in God's timing. He waits for his rescue and he seeks to glorify God. And really, that is our response as well. We are called to trust God's timing, wait for his rescue, and seek to glorify him. So let's work through this passage and see how Paul actually works those things through. First thing that Paul is called and and we are called to do is really trust in God's timing. Verse 11 and 12 actually pick up the story right away from where we left off, right? There's not really a break there. Paul gets on the boat and he travels across into these cities. He ends up in Philippi. And we're told Philippi is a Roman colony. It was the biggest city in the area, and it was a Roman colony. That little tidbit is going to come back in later. What we know from historical documents is that Philippi was a a town where a lot of ex-military guys ended up retiring. Right, So if you were a commander in the army, someone important, eventually you retire, you're done with your active duty, this was sort of a place set aside just for you to go relax and enjoy your life. But this also meant this was a fiercely loyal town to the emperor. These guys were as Roman as Roman can get, so much so that they don't even have a synagogue in this city. You know, Paul's pattern all throughout the book of Acts, whenever he gets into a new area, is he, first of all, he finds the synagogue. And he goes and he begins to teach them about what Jesus has done. When we show up here, there's no synagogue for Paul to go to, right? In Jewish custom, it only took 10 men, 10 men, and you could make your own synagogue. Apparently in Philippi, there wasn't even that. And so they're just sort of hearing about this place down by the river where some people are gathering to pray. And so they're they're going there. Verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate, outside of the city, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Right There's this tiny, tiny little community who are apparently serving God. Paul wasn't even sure if he was going to find them there or not. Seems like it's a small group of women gathering together, supporting one another and praying. And yet God is going to do something amazing. Verse 14 says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods 
who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We meet this woman, Lydia. She's not even really from uh, the city of Philippi. She's from Thyatira. She doesn't seem to be Jewish, but she is, in some sense, a, a worshiper of God. But what is more important is that God opens her heart to listen to what Paul is saying. God is the one at work here, and Paul is simply called, trust God's timing in this. See, this would have been a fairly surprising passage. It might not be for us, because we're kind of used to this idea, but in an ancient society, why is Paul going and talking to this group of women? It's a group you would probably ignore altogether, and it's hardly something you would record as being sort of a triumph of, of the gospel coming into this new city. Right? Women, as much as this woman was most likely well off, she was wealthy, seller of purple goods, right? That's rare and expensive. She would have been of some repute, and yet women were still looked like looked at in very much of a second class. Yet God chooses a woman to be the very first European convert. As much as the Roman society was going to be separated by gender, salvation is not. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In God's good timing, he chooses that the first convert would be a woman. And in fact, actually, interestingly, if you follow the story from here on out, the next person that we encounter is a slave and then a jailer. It's almost as if God is choosing these people to interact with them, to show the fact that there will be no barriers, that everyone enters into salvation the same way. We are all sinners, people who have fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all saved in the same way, that is, by faith in Jesus Christ. There's no distinctions here. Everyone comes to God through Jesus Right? And God is going to begin this church in Philippi by almost making that apparent, making that very clear. Now, and I almost need to add this point. It doesn't mean that, that our, all of our uniqueness is therefore wiped away in our salvation. As if God has not given us roles and gifts to play and to work out. No, God has given all those things. But what it means is that there is no uh, second tier when it comes to salvation. There's no distinction. Everyone receives salvation through faith in Jesus Christ when God opens our hearts to hear the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. And see, here's really the point that we get in this verse. God is the one who opens her heart to hear this message. Paul is speaking. He's being faithful to his supporting role, but it's God who does the work of opening her heart. God does the work of salvation, not the preacher, right? It's true of every one of us who believe in Jesus today, right? We believe because God did a work in our heart to open us up to understand and hear and know and accept the message of Jesus Christ. It's not because you were smart enough to figure it out. It's not because you were born into the right family or that you made the right choices. It's because God has opened your heart to believe and therefore we ought to praise him for that. It means we ought to celebrate and rejoice because God has done this work of salvation in us. 
So you gotta, you gotta remember where Paul is coming from in this moment. See, Paul has just spent a long time journeying, traveling, going from town to town, being told, no, 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 you can't preach. It's been a long time, and Paul is getting probably a little bit fed up, not finding the people he's intending or thinking that he would find. He's getting roadblocked. I don't know about you, but I feel discouraged after that happens. If I try and share my faith and and it doesn't go well, I I, want to go, well, let's throw in the towel. I don't want to keep talking about this. This is hard. It's difficult. No one's believing me. They're all making fun of me. Right? That's, that's kind of our natural reactions. I should just kind of give up. Yet Paul continues to share. Why? Because he knows God is the one who will work in people's hearts to allow them to receive this good news of salvation. He trusts in God's timing. And so all he has to do is be faithful to the call. Share this good news. Share what Jesus has done wherever he has placed us. And trust that God is the one who's going to work in people's lives. So I think we we give up too quickly. We share our faith. It doesn't go well. And so we're like, all right, I'm done. I'm out. Instead of trusting, well, okay, if I just keep sharing, actually it means God is going to do that work of opening people's hearts. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Right? Her faith is met with immediate obedience in baptism and then responding in hospitality. I'll give of everything that I have. Come into my house. Whatever I have, it's yours. Right? It's this beautiful response of faith that only God does in our hearts, transforms us completely. So trust in God's timing. And as he does that, Paul realizes he's not finished with this city. We're told Paul and his company, they they end up spending some time in Philippi. We're not told exactly how long that is, but by the end of the chapter, it seems as though there's some kind of church already established. So we're we're not told how long Paul is exactly here. But as he is going out to this place of prayer where this church is now beginning to meet and beginning to to gather together, Paul is met by this girl. She's a slave girl who is being possessed by a a demon, right? And she she has owners who are actually using her to make money. They're using her, her demonic captivity to make money off of her. In many ways, this is a tragic story that we're told in just a few sentences here. But what's surprising is that as she is following after Paul, she begins to declare, these are servants of God most high, and they're going to tell you the way of salvation. And you can imagine Paul kind of going, well, well, that's true. I, I am going to do that. But you can imagine he'd be a little bit confused as to what exactly is going on right now. It should be actually a little bit reminiscent of Jesus. Jesus, often during his ministry, would have people who are demon-possessed begin to say, you know, this is God most high. And Jesus would always tell them to be quiet, right? That wasn't their place to begin to speak. And Paul ends up doing very much the same kind of thing. He's annoyed after a little while as she keeps following after them. And so he commands the spirit to go out of here, uh, go out of her. But this is where the story actually gets going. See, the people who owned this slave girl were mad. They wanted to make money off of her. That was their whole purpose. They wanted to benefit off of her enslavement. And so now her not being enslaved to this demonic uh, possession 
means they can't make money. And so they get furious. They grab Paul and Cyrus and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers of the city. Verse 20 says, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And in one sense, they're kind of right. Romans would often worship the emperor as supreme and, and actually... Christians do not do that. We worship God alone and no one else. And so in almost this this fit of national pride, they begin to grab them. They grab rods and they begin to beat them in the middle of the street. They get essentially lynched there and then dragged off into prison and thrown into the dungeon of it and into the stocks. And here is where we find Paul simply needs to wait for God's rescue. What I think is probably one of the most amazing verses in this passage is verse 25. As they are sitting there, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They had just been lynched, beaten, and dragged into prison. And what are they doing? Singing. Praying. Right? Apparently unconcerned about all the events that have just taken place uh, to them. First Peter chapter 4 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to, upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's singing, he's rejoicing, he's praying to God amongst all of these horrific things that have just happened to him. All he's going to do is wait for God's salvation. And sometimes we we almost think that a waiting is going to be a very passive thing. I'm going to sit and do nothing. And yet what we find them is praising, worshiping, praying before God. And in fact, God is going to work salvation in this passage. Verse 26 says, suddenly there was a great earthquake So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. God literally breaks down the entire prison. Everything is going to be destroyed. Everyone is set free, right? It's this amazing miracle that God works and yet Paul doesn't move. Paul doesn't move an inch. He sits in prison and he actually is going to stay there. And, and we're kind of led to this question, why? Paul, God has just rescued you. He literally broke you open, right? Go. Why aren't you walking out of prison? Here's, I think, the answer that our text gives us. God didn't send an earthquake to rescue Paul. He sent an earthquake to rescue the jailer. See, I think Paul could have gotten out of prison at any point. I don't think Paul was even really concerned that much about it. As we continue on, we realize he's a Roman citizen. All he has to say is, I'm a Roman citizen, and they would have let him out of jail immediately. God knows that. Paul is probably even planning that at this moment. So why does God send an earthquake? God sends an earthquake to rescue the jailer out of his bondage to sin. 
so that everyone in the jail would be very clear as to who actually is in charge, so that this jailer and the people in the jail would hear the message of the gospel, see the power of God, and believe. Paul is waiting for God to rescue the jailer. And so after the earthquake hits, Paul realizes God is actually up to something here. God is going to be doing something, and so he doesn't move. He knows actually the jailer very well could be put to death in this situation. We've actually seen that earlier on in the book of Acts, right? For a Roman guard to let their prisoner go meant they faced death. That's exactly what we see. Verse 27 says, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. So Paul shouts out, stop, we're all here. We haven't gone anywhere at this moment. Finally, they get lights on and the jailer realizes actually not only has his life been spared, but the two men that he had locked up indeed actually were messengers from God. And so in that moment, he asks the best question possible. Verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household And he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. See, he asks here the right question. It is the question that we need to ask. What do I need to do in order to be saved? And the answer Paul gives is believe in Jesus. Trust in his death as the payment for your sins, as his resurrection, as the assurance of new life. God sends an earthquake to get this man's attention so that he will be shaken out of his spiritual apathy to actually listen to what Paul and Silas are saying. God uses all kinds of things to to get us out of our spiritual apathy, to wake us up so that we actually begin to ask the right questions. So we actually begin to ask the things that are most important in life instead of just, you know, what am I going to do today or what kind of thing could I watch on Netflix or whatever else it might be. We need to start asking some of the big questions in life. What does happen to me when I die? If I stand before God, am I going to be all right? God uses some giant means to get our attention to wake us up. Things like earthquakes, floods, pandemics. I think we ought to remember when God sends these things, sometimes it's for the very purpose to wake us up so that we would actually begin to ask those important questions. Jesus tells his followers the same thing in Luke chapter 13. They're asking about why these big cataclysmic events happened. Jesus says, or or consider those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right? Jesus says that tower didn't fall because they were horrible people, that they were the worst people in all of Jerusalem. No. It was so that we would actually wake up and begin to ask these important questions. Right? Many of you know the story even in my own life. Grew up in a Christian home knew about Jesus, but I had very much the intention to be a deathbed convert, right? I'm just going to wait. I'm going to do whatever I want to do on my last day. 
in my deathbed, that's when I'm going to give my, my life to the Lord. I'll, I'll tick that box right there at the end. But when I was in grade seven, my uncle was killed in a car accident. He was driving to work just like any other day, hit by a car, and he was killed nearly on the spot. I realized I, I might not get a deathbed. He had to, had to wake me up a little bit to say, well, what happens if I do die? If I am going to stand before God, where am I standing? God uses these means to, to shake us, to wake us up, and actually to ask that question, am I right with God? How do I be right with God? And Paul gives us the answer, believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in him for your forgiveness. Turn away from your sins and rather turn towards Christ. Follow after him and you will be saved. See, Paul here in this chapter, he is waiting. He's waiting because he knows God is going to rescue him. He's trusting God is going to do something. He might not know exactly what it was going to be. I doubt Paul had in mind that an earthquake would come. But when it happens, he realizes this is a moment God has given me to share the gospel. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, those of us who've asked those big questions, who trust in Jesus, are we willing to use these moments even to share a little bit about Jesus? I mean, we are living through interesting times. Floods, pandemics, killer bees, I don't know, whatever else has come up this past year. I can hardly remember it all. Maybe God is trying to get our attention a little bit. Maybe God's trying to wake us up a little bit from our spiritual apathy and cause us to ask some of those important questions and deal with who Jesus is. Maybe God is giving us this moment to be able to share a little bit more about who he is. This is God's story. We want to see what God is going to be doing. How do we support the amazing things that God is doing? All right, we said Paul isn't the hero. And the focus really isn't on him. We're called to trust in his timing, to wait for his rescue, but finally to seek God's glory. There's one last really big question, I think, that comes out of this text. And that's right from the very end. After all of this has settled, the dust has literally settled after the earthquake. The magistrates, the rulers of the city, they come and they say, hey, Paul, you can go. Just, just go. And, and Paul kind of gets his back up and he says, hold on, no. I'm not just going to leave here all by myself. In fact, in verse 38, he says, uh, the police reported, oh, sorry, I jumped too far. Verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens have thrown us in prison and now they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul kind of stands up for he demands his own rights. Paul is a Roman citizen. Now it does not mean that he lived in Rome. Roman citizen was a, a particular title, a privilege that you could have either by being born into it or, or buying it for an enormous sum. But Roman citizens were a special class within the empire. Not everyone was that, and it afforded him all kinds of privileges for that status. You couldn't just be condemned. You couldn't just be thrown in jail. You had to stand trial. It's a little worrying that not everyone had that privilege, but that's the truth. Verse 38 says, when the police heard uh, these words to the magistrates, they were afraid 
when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Paul knows, actually, if, you, if word gets back that you have incarcerated, that you have treated poorly this man who is a Roman citizen, you are in danger. Paul realizes that. But here's my question. Why does Paul do this? Why does he do this now? This isn't the first time Paul has been beaten. Paul has been beaten lots. He was stoned nearly to death. He's been attacked and thrown out of cities all over the place. Why suddenly now is he going to use this Roman citizen status? He's always had it. Why now? Well, in fact, last week we looked at a a passage where where Paul was very much giving up some of his rights, right? There there were times where dealing with the whole issue of of circumcision, right? When when someone should or shouldn't. Actually, what we saw there in, in both of those cases, Paul made the decision based on how people would actually hear the gospel. If people would hear the gospel because he stood up for his rights, he would stand up. If people would hear the gospel because he would lay down his rights, he laid them down. I think the exact same thing is happening here. You've got to remember the church is brand new in this area. It's brand new in the continent. They don't have a lot of support. And at this point, the, the leaders of the church have just been publicly beaten, abused, and thrown in prison. I think Paul recognizes the fact that if he doesn't stand up at this moment, the church is going to be overrun. Everyone is going to assume that what is happening in the church is somehow anti-Roman, illegal, and they have every right to attack them. Paul actually stands up for his rights, I think, to defend the church. So that the church could actually survive in this area. So that actually that the gospel could continue to go on. And ultimately that God would be glorified. Paul's not actually that concerned that it's his name being vindicated. He's concerned that the message of the gospel is. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul says, it's not about me. It is about what Jesus has done. In fact, I think that ought to be our goal as well. It is our goal to seek that God's glory would be more and more known and seek uh, to be seen around us. But here's where we have to be a little bit careful. Okay, because this kind of a text has been applied poorly many times. Where people think that any time they're standing up for their rights, they're doing it for God. And, And we can come up with all kinds of crazy examples of people doing this, protesting at funerals and all the rest, horrible things. The question is, how, does this, how do we actually do this well? What does it look like to stand up for our rights so that God is glorified? I think it means when you're on the job site and you're working and people are starting to make fun of Christians. How dumb they are, how backwards they are, how old school. I think it means you actually say something. Don't start a fight. That's not going to help anyone. But actually, it means you stand up and you say, well, actually, you know, some Christians have been doing some amazing things, right? Look at what the churches are doing at this point, helping out with with lots of people who are in need. Point out what churches do in our community or when when the name of Jesus gets brought up and everyone laughs because he's just a myth, a made-up fairy tale. Actually, bring up some of those historical accounts that, that actually confirm Jesus truly lived, truly died, that he rose again. Actually, I think it means we stand up a little bit for the name of Jesus. 
And we don't allow the name of God to be dragged through the mud. Hear me, that takes wisdom to do well. There's lots of ways we can do that very poorly. That we can start arguments and it doesn't help the cause of Christ at all. But I think we ought to use our free speech in such a way, winsomely, graciously, so that Jesus is glorified. So that people, when they hear the name of Jesus, are not turned away, but in fact, curious. See, the goal is that God would be glorified, not us. Lots of people get this one confused because they try and see, make themselves seem clever. If I have a clever comeback, a clever quick retort, it makes me look good. Our goal is actually to glorify God. Use what we have to seek to glorify him, right? We aren't the main character. We're called to point to the one who is. We're called to point towards Jesus and to the salvation that he has bought for us. See, just like Paul, we're not the hero of our own story. Ultimately, it's about what God has done. So that means we're the supporting characters to what God is doing. Our job is to point to him. We are to trust in his timing as we continue to share our faith. Continue to share God's story. Wait for his rescue. Wait for those opportunities that God has given us to be able to share our faith more and more around us. Seek that God would be glorified, that his name would be honored, that his gospel would be known. We want people to see the hero of the story. We want people to see Jesus. So let us work for that end, that Jesus might be glorified, that he might be known and loved above all in all the strength that God has given to us. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. Lord, we're so grateful for all the gifts that you have given us. Father, we confess that there are times where we want to be the hero where we want to be praised, where we want it to seem like it's all about us. Father, we repent of those moments. Lord, we confess that it is about you. It is your gospel that drives us. Lord, it is you who have saved us. And so it is you who ought to be praised in all things. Father, might our lives be devoted to seeking your glory. Father, give us the the patience to wait carefully for the rescue that you provide, for your timing, that we would trust in you and be found faithful in all of it. Father, we ask, would you be glorified? Would you make your glory known? Would you make your gospel known around us, we ask? In your name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are, we're going to be celebrating communion here together. So I'll invite you, if you have uh, the communion elements, you should have received these as you came in the door. If you haven't, uh, some of our ushers have them at the back. You can grab them. But communion is really a, a recognition of exactly what we're talking about, about seeking God's glory. It's a, it's a recognition, a remembrance that it's not us who saves ourselves, but ultimately it is God who saves us. We didn't do this work, God did. We didn't go to the cross, Jesus went in our place. We didn't pay the punishment of our sins, that was paid for by Christ. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so yes, this is juice and bread. 
But it's, it's a remembrance. It's a symbol of his body, of his blood, which was given for us. And so this morning, as we participate in communion together, I'll invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to, to join with us, to make this statement that you are one who follows after Jesus with all of your life. If that's not who you are, if that's not where you're at at this point in your spiritual journey, please don't feel singled out. Every person was once at a point where we also just simply let these things pass by. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I'll invite you to come together, to participate. To do so is first of all to trust that ultimately we cannot save ourselves. It is done by Jesus Christ. He is the one who has accomplished our salvation. But secondly... To participate means we are making a declaration, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That to the very best of what God has given me, I seek to follow after him. That in his strength, I am seeking to be led by him each and every single day. None of us do that perfectly. None of us are without sin. We all fail. And so this morning, as we come to communion, we're going to start simply by confessing our sins before God. We're going to take a moment just in the quietness of our own hearts to pray, confess any unconfessed sins before God and be reminded of the grace and the gift that God has given us in salvation. So let's take a moment, let's pray, confess any unconfessed sins and then we'll partake together.